thank you for being here. Super, great, thanks for having me. So it's been an interesting week. I think you were here actually a week ago and a lot has happened in the week since. And one of the things I wanna talk about, although I know you only wanna talk about it briefly, is all the chatter about appeasement from France, from other countries in Europe, from Henry Kissinger. And what is appeasement? Why are we hearing so much about it? And what does Ukraine, how does Ukraine respond to this? So first and foremost, the question is why are we having this wave of appeasement calls? Um, this is probably a recognition uh, in most capitals around the world and outside that this war will last potentially for a long time. So neither Russia is really uh, achieving its strategic objectives as fast as it planned to, nor is Ukraine yet in a counteroffensive mode, at least not for the time being. A uh, couple of things need to happen on the battlefield to change the former or the latter. Um, but there is, uh, after three months, a certain amount of fatigue in certain places and people would like to go back to the world as it was before February 24th. Spoiler alert, the world is not going back to February 23rd. Like the world yeah. is not going back to pre-COVID, you know, a, a broader yeah. discussion we can have about, about that. Um, so what is, what is appeasement in general? Um, it's a widely discredited element of the so-called realist thinking in politics, uh, which had some, you know, positive externalities, not least realpolitik at some point during the Cold War was helpful to tie um, the West and the East in some form of dialogue. Uh, but, but this realism as we know it now, um, you'll find it possibly among many of your interlocutors, people say, well, it's enough, you know, let's just, let's just stop this. There's no chance that Ukraine can win this and things can only get worse or spill over to other countries or, or, you know, or we risk maybe nuclear clash and look at the, um, um, the blockade of Odessa port and all the problems with exporting grain from Ukraine, this creates all these problems. So let's just, let's just freeze it right there. A couple of problems with this, and I would give you three arguments that you can use if you are confronted with the so-called realist thinking. So the first one is, is that realism in its appeasement version views um, global geopolitics and global geoeconomics as closed systems. In fact, they're open systems and open systems are very complex. And in those op open systems, the aggressive party uh, will make you believe that there is only one goal after which everything will be fine. We'll just take Donbass and the mm -hmm. peace will reign over Europe. We'll only take over Taiwan and there will be peace in Asia Pacific and so on and so forth. And we know from history, that's not true. That's not how the aggressive autocratic regimes function. And so uh, by doing this, um, you essentially open the Pandora's box for subsequent conflicts um, because it's an open-ended system. You'll never yeah. negotiate the end with an autocratic ruler by applying a realistic benchmark. So that's, that's the first thing. The second issue is that by doing this, you give away um, the sort of escalation initiative. So this is important in any negotiation, but in particular in military terms, you know, if someone has the initiative to escalate and de-escalate, that's half of the win. And in fact, for the last 22 years, Putin has had escalatory uh, initiative um, because by freezing any conflict, it's his gained right 
to restart again whenever he wants. Right. And, and hence the importance of this relatively mid-sized economy like Russia for the rest of the world. The West is not interested in Russia because of its stellar innovation. It's not interested in engaging in Russia to learn something about governance. Uh, it has very little to actually learn from, from Russia today, um, except it has to deal with it because this is this bully that escalates and de-escalates. And whenever it escalates, then it sends troops to um, bring peace, you know, peace between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And of course, some of that conflict is not necessarily entirely out of Russia initiative, but Russia has used its power to um, reopen and, and close it. Um, Transnistria, classic example in, in, in Moldova, and of course, Georgia, and of course, uh, Ukraine, and hybrid uh, attacks on either uh, the Baltic countries or Sweden and so on. So that's the second problem. You just give away the initiative. The third issue with realism and appeasement is that it posits a kind of a moral equivalence between the West and the aggressive autocratic regimes such as Russia and China. And you know, just I think last week I listened to Ray Dahlia, who's a very prominent hedge funder up here in Connecticut, who over the last couple of months raised his third China fund. So he's investing in China as mm -hmm. just as everybody else is running away. Um, I remember in a, in, in a discussion once, uh, I think on CNBC, they asked him about the concentration camps in Xinjiang and his answer was, sorry, you know, uh, human rights are not my expertise. But his uh, recent um, um, interview uh, that you can find on YouTube, he picks up elements of Putin's propaganda about the so-called Eastern expansion of NATO by saying what I actually saw for the first time when I worked for a hedge fund myself in Charlotte, North Carolina, what is this, 14 years ago during the uh, global financial crisis and Russia invaded Georgia. And from the same sort of Wall Street realist school, I heard, well, it's, it's, it's understandable, it's their backyard, it's, it's their right. What if suddenly they put something like this in, you know, in our backyard, we would react exactly in the same way. Yes. And so my answer to Mr. Dalio and, and realists like him is like, we don't react the same way. We've been living with, you know, tyrannical Cuba for 60 years, somehow, okay, with not much of economic exchange, but we have not bombarded Cuba. We have not raped their women. We have not looted their shops in which there's nothing to loot from in the first place. We haven't done any of these things that Putin is doing in his near border, nor have we actually done anything significant to Venezuela. In fact, we are negotiating with this regime right now because we need them and they actually need us yes. in the current oil um, embargo um, scenario. And then take Nicaragua. China basically purchased Nicaragua late last year, I think in November last year, uh, entrenching Ortega's regime. What have we done? Next to nothing. So I'm not saying there's nothing going on covertly, but we actually are not invading other countries, even in our backyard, when it's when something happens that's of from the national security perspective, quite potentially threatening to our interests. We don't act like this. So there is no moral equivalence. And so this, this comparison, you know, NATO expansion, this is, you know, understandable because you have to think Russia, you know, Napoleon, Hitler, you can't compare the organization, which is a defensive treaty to Napoleon's or, or Hitler's um, colonialist uh, ambitions in the East. There is no comparison. NATO does not design any attack on, on Russia or indeed any other country.
Right. It's a purely defensive, defensive treaty. And as we know, countries want to be within this defensive treaty. And this is how it expands. It doesn't expand. It just adopts um, members or new members who are willing to, uh, to join. And, you know, the, the entire uh, realist or appeasement style argument, you know, Putin had to invade Ukraine because, look, it could become a member of NATO. Well, it invaded Ukraine because it's not a member of NATO. Right. That's, that's where the predictive power of realism stops. Russia has never attacked a NATO country. It invaded Hungary, which was not a NATO country, Czechoslovakia, Afghanistan, had a border conflict with PRC, had a winter war with Finland, uh, invaded Georgia, Ukraine, you name it. None of these are NATO countries. Right. And likewise, after Finland and, and Sweden eventually join NATO, Russia will not invade, invade them. So the, 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 you, you can turn against the appeasement by saying in 2008, when Angela Merkel and Sarkozy, president of France, blocked the, the fast track for Ukraine and Georgia to join NATO, they laid the groundwork for this war. That's exactly yeah. what happens. <clears throat> so there's nothing that actually can um, convince, uh, you know, people who just look at the facts on the ground in recent history that realism and appeasement are right. And unfortunately, we see it. We see it in the U.S. press. We see it, you know, in uh, both from the right, this kind of isolationist right, Rand Paul here in this country, or from the left, New York Times. Um, both were equally wrong about it. The only chance to really... Uh, cut off the Hydra's head is for Ukraine to define what it means to to win this war and win it with our help. Otherwise, we're going to be back to square one in two or three years. You know, Russia has resources. It showed many times in history that even if it loses conflicts, it stands up and fights again after the Crimea War, after the initial losses to Hitler's army during the Second World War. So it will be extremely dangerous to allow this conflict to freeze, not only for Ukraine, but also for Moldova and Georgia and the Baltic countries and Poland and many others. So I just want to want to be clear about this. Um, and you might have said this, but I want to make sure it's clear to everybody watching. When we say appeasement, what we mean is if you look at what Kissinger said, for instance, on Monday, uh, what they're saying is, Ukraine should give Russia some of its land as a way of creating peace. And every time I hear someone say something like this, what I think in my mind, and this is what I want to hear you comment on, is I assume the person calling for that appeasement by Ukraine, the person or the organization, because the New York Times had an article earlier this week, you know, uh, proposing appeasement. I think to myself, this is not about what's in the best interest of Ukraine. It's not even in the best interest of what's for the world. It's in the best interest of, of something for you, for your particular gains or the gains of your friends or your allies. It's never, never about what's right for the world or what's right for Ukraine, which is who is in the battle, right? It's yeah. their land to give up. I mean, my response to Henry Kissinger was what he's suggesting is, Anyone who wants to storm his house, murder members of his family, and burn the house down and should be punished by getting the keys to the guest house. Right. That's exactly. what he's saying. Yeah. And, and, uh, am I reading that right? Yeah, fully agree with that. And I think the problem is when it comes from intellectuals, you know, whether American intellectual, French, uh, British, German, and so on, is that it comes from 
empires or former empires, and yes. they see the world through the lenses of just imperial thinking. So they kind of rule out that smaller groups of people with strong local identity have agency. Yes. Ukrainians have agency. Brilliantly they said. have their own interests. So do the Taiwanese and many other countries which are smaller. Kissinger doesn't doesn't even notice that they exist. You know, his his love-in with Mao Zedong was a great example of that. Now, it brought some advantages for some time, but certainly outlived its utility a long time ago. So I think he's very compromised in, in terms of his commitment mm. to appeasement because, sorry, you know, unfortunately, smaller countries have agency as well. They have their own history. And they're going to act accordingly. And I think Ukraine is showing that it's that it, that's exactly the case. And every time I hear someone talking about appeasement like Kissinger, this is the visual that comes to my mind. Yes, oh, right. Ukraine, you're a pest. Goodbye. All right, let's change gears because you've mentioned Taiwan a couple of times here, and there was a big, significant exchange between the president Biden and I think a member of the press. Although I'm actually not sure about that. But give us the background on what he said and what it means and why it's relevant to us talking about Ukraine first and foremost and Russia today. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's do this small detour. We'll go back to Eastern Europe in a moment. But um, you know, it was imp it's important what happened in Tokyo. This is this is a very, very important uh trip by the US president to South Korea and Japan. And uh, uh you know, it ended with the meeting of the four uh heads of states of the Quad in, in Tokyo. For the second time in six, seven months, uh Biden reacted exactly in the same way to the same kind of question. It's a question. If China militarily invades Taiwan, will U.S. come to its defense? And the answer was yes. And the second uh, sentence was, we have a commitment to do this. Yeah. Uh, the commitment that he refers to is Taiwan Relations Act from 1979, which was signed under the pressure from Congress, which was blindsided by uh, the speed with which Jimmy Carter and Zbigniew Brzezinski moved to recognize Beijing. Uh, rather than Taipei as the representative of, of China. Now, um, it's important that Biden said it for the second time. Why? Because in my view, and you know, this is a speculative element here I'm throwing in, uh, since about 20, 2017, the US diplomacy has taken a leaf out of Chinese playbook and is using what I call the salami tactics, verbally only, semantically, we slowly, slowly are shifting away from what was hardcore commitment to strategic ambiguity. Therefore, yes, we'll help Taiwan, but we're not saying if it means boots on the ground or what it actually means, because Taiwan is not a treaty country, unlike, say, South Korea or Japan. Um, but uh, there is less and less of this ambiguity. So there is there has not been like an announcement saying, you know what, we're moving away from that ambiguity and there will be such and such number of US troops stationed in Taiwan to protect mm. it. That's not what happens. But what happens is just to make Beijing guessing, make them guess, what is this? What's going on? What kind of shift has, has occurred? And indeed it does reflect the significant shift in thinking in the connection with the, between the militaries of the two countries, between the diplomats, all the visits, official visits that we have in Taiwan since basically the beginning of COVID both from Europe and, and from, from the United States. And it's very important that these words were 
pronounced in Tokyo. Why? Because of course, Japan as a former colonial power in Taiwan will be the first country that's drawn into the conflict. So the Japanese yeah. want this clarity. They're rebuilding their military precisely for this contingency. They wanted to hear that and they heard it. And it doesn't matter that two days later, you know, some junior official from the State Department will say, well, what he actually meant was X, Y, Z. You know, this is this is like Donald Trump's, uh, you know, uh, big statements at some point, And then later he would apologize for something nobody paid attention. Right. So this is this is a well-known tactic. And I think um, it it actually is uh, very important in that standoff because um, Beijing is trying to draw lessons from the Ukrainian conflict for the sake of their, you know, propaganda in the region and elsewhere. Um, the part of propaganda is U.S. has abandoned Ukraine. We know it's not true, but they're trying to measure what level of engagement the United States would have uh, if there is a contingency, of course, of a very different nature because of the nature of geography and so on. It would be different, different type of conflict. And how would U.S. react? And right now, we don't give them this comfort to 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 make them really um, psych it out. So I think it's a very very well crafted message because there's so many people say, well, you know, Sleepy Joe, he doesn't know what he's saying. You know, Bloomberg wrote that he misspoke. You know, the guy's been around for half a century. Uh, he doesn't well, really and, and then some. <laughs> yeah, and then some exactly. So yeah. this is all very well planted. I would say probably planted with the with, with the journalist, the right time, the right place, and uh, you know not for the first time. So it's a very very important signal. Do you know who asked the question? No, yeah, I couldn't find it either. So you mentioned several times now that he said this twice. Yes, and is the second the, the, yeah. is that an, an, a significant affirming event? Because the first time could have been oh, it was just Sleepy Joe. But if he said it a second time, that is a much greater level of commitment. And yeah, I mean, but, about, yeah, I mean that's that's precisely because where, where it happened. So in Tokyo, number one. And secondly, just on the eve of the big quad meeting. Yeah. And what, what is quad about? Quad is essentially only about China, right? This is this is what yes, the yes. alliance is about. So so I think this gives it a lot more gravitas. And you know the fact that it's pronounced for the second time. You're right. I mean, this is there. You don't make the same mistake twice. Yeah. And you mentioned how for China, a lot of this is about how watching what's happening in Ukraine. A lot of this is about well, how is the U.S. going to respond if China invades Taiwan? I, I guess I'm wondering or I'm assuming that China's not only looking at how the U.S. has responded in relationship to Russia and Ukraine, but how the rest of the world has responded. Because if you thought that, if you thought that the world was going to stand back and let Russia invade Ukraine, you might draw the conclusion that the world's going to stand back and let you invade Taiwan. And the world, the global community, has done anything but that. So that's got to be sending a big message to China as well. Yeah. So I, I would probably have just a slight issue with the term global community because the mm -hmm. global community is divided, but the developed countries are not divided, right? Mm -hmm. So so we have, uh, you know, this certainly came as a surprise, not only to Putin, but also to Xi Jinping, to what extent Western Europe has, you know, come very united in this. I mean, the, the, the change in, in Germany, German politics has been dramatic, 180 degrees turn. Um, takes a while to translate into into acts but once the germans actually 
have a new strategy, uh, acting comes pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, Japan this time is part of the sanction package against Russia. It was not eight years ago. Is it still hope to sign energy deals with Putin? Putin made a big mistake by uh, opting for uh, Chinese relationship only and putting all his eggs in one basket. South mm -hmm. Korea is part of the package. Taiwan, of course, is a part of the uh, sanction package against Russia. And so is Singapore. So it's not to mention Australia, of course. So it's, it's, it is uh, sobering for, for Beijing to see that there, you know, there is an alliance of free countries that represent more than 60% of global GDP, whereas China and Russia is about 20. Mm -hmm. So it's significant. It's a significant weight. Now, you can still ask a question, does that mean that in case of Taiwan contingency, Western Europe would act exactly in the same way, or indeed South Korea, which is very strongly integrated into the Chinese value chain and Chinese market. And we will not know until that happens. But I think the deterioration in relations between European Union and China, which has progressed since the beginning of COVID, and uh, was actually marked recently by the very um, chilling um, uh, summit between EU and uh, the Chinese Premier a couple of weeks ago. It was just virtual, mm -hmm. um, but no niceties there. And of course, Europe as a as a theater of kinetic war uh, demands a completely different attitude from from China regarding the war, at least semantically. The, Europe doesn't get that, and China is now thrown into the same basket. It doesn't mean necessarily that European companies with significant exposure to Chinese market are ready. To, to act upon it, but that's a different issue. And at the end of the day, once the legislation passes, the companies have to do what they have to do. The question is how strong the lobbies are of the large, large companies, especially German large multinationals who are present in, in China and Russia for that matter still. Um, and you know how strong the um, covert Russian, especially Chinese United Front of the Chinese Communist Party influence is over those large companies. So. It's, you know, we have no guarantee the world will look exactly the same. Uh, one thing that we can guarantee, and we might talk about it at length at some, some other point, is that India, which is very ambivalent right now, will be on the side of the Western world when the conflict with China happens. And just to bring this back to appeasement, if Ukraine was to take the advice of the New York Times and Henry Kissinger and, and uh, President Macron, the message it would send to China is, Go for it, dudes. Look, it worked out for us. You should do the same thing with Taiwan. It's going to work out for you. And that's why we, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons we must oppose the temptation to fall for the argument of appeasement. Yeah, I mean, it could open up a, a Pandora's box in, in many places. You know, there are other places that are unstable, potentially North Korean uh, peninsula, mm -hmm. you know, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and so on. So, we have entered a period of instability. You now Turkey's talking about moving um, troops again into Kurdistan and so on. Um, it's it's important that the message is very clear on 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 what's simply not allowed from the perspective yeah. of international relations, international law, and you know not to mention all the conventions that the Russian military does not does not comply with. So that's a, uh, I think it's. Uh, you know, we, I mentioned the moral equivalence, the, the issue of how this war is conducted by, by Russians, um, basically, you know, targeting civilians to, to scare and, and, and subjugate the civilian population of Ukraine, that should give someone like Kissinger a pause. But he mm -hmm. doesn't notice that. You know, yeah. he's, he thinks only in terms of, you know, big empires, big, big, you know, um, wheels of, of history moving and, 
that's 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 his view. He doesn't notice the real human factor behind this. So you and I had a conversation yesterday or the day before about something you've noticed in the I'm going to say the design or the structure of Russia's military or 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 even international and domestic intelligence that reminds you of World War II in Germany. Tell us mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, so this is interesting. Um, the event, let me start with the event and then a little bit of an analysis, mm -hmm. analytical uh, sketch. Um, the event is that according to some leaks from Moscow, uh, there was a switch over in terms of the responsibility for military or generally intelligence services within Ukraine. So Russians, of course, have been trying to penetrate Ukraine more or less successfully for the last 30 years. It intensified prior to the first war in Crimea and Donbass. And it's been usually done by FSB, which is the successor of KGB. So um, the, the, the sort of, the, it's a, it's, it's a internal police, um, but it has also an um, outreach uh, internationally, not least into Ukraine, the so-called fifth service of FSB. And they were actually tasked with preparing the first war uh in ukraine in in 2014 and they were giving the same task again this time and they have been now replaced by gru which is military intelligence so pure military intelligence like every other country has so yes you know fsb role is more typical of an autocratic country but most militaries around the world have a military uh, have an intelligence service and gru is that one there's always been a competition between the two competition for funds, competition for power, and so on. And of course, with sort of a one-man show, the way that the Russian uh, government system is uh, structured, that is supposed to help, right? Competition for good information and, you know, see who, who does better. So there's no love loss between the two. And yeah. GRU has now been put in charge of intelligence uh, operations within Ukraine. Uh, there's also Foreign Intelligence Service, which is run by a guy named Narishkin. Uh, who is very close to, to Putin. You might remember him from the, uh, from the announcement of the independence of those two Bantustans, Donetsk and Luhansk, two days mm -hmm. before the outbreak of the war. He was the one who was severely scolded by, by Putin. Anyway, why, why do I find it interesting? Because in the middle of the war, suddenly we have that, that switch over. Obviously, it means that FSB hasn't done its work right. properly. And we know they haven't, or well, they did not prior to the war, even though there were elements of the fifth column throughout Ukraine at the beginning of the war. So it, you know, we know it from, from refugees who are trying to escape from, from Kiev or from Chernihov or from Vinitsa further west, and they were caught in sniper fire somewhere in the, you know, um, um, so it took a while for uh, Ukrainian, not even military, but for the uh, National Guard and, and territorial defense to actually wipe out those fifth uh, column elements. And they were mm. probably planted by either FSB or FIS. So now it's down to the military uh, intelligence. And it brought to my mind an element of the Second World War, which you know maybe our listeners don't remember. Germany also had multiple intelligence, including foreign intelligence services. Of course, its military had its uh, intelligence service called Abwehr, which basically means defense. And Abwehr was run by an Admiral Canaris, who was a distinguished Admiral of the, of the Navy, retired and brought back to 
to run this, I think mostly because he spoke like six languages or something. Anyway, so he was put in late in his life in, in, in charge of Abwehr and Abwehr was doing its, its, its job uh, on all fronts as military intelligence usually does. But there was also a arm of the Nazi party. Um, so NSDAP, Nazi party had an arm called uh, SD, Sicherheitsdienst. So that's a security service. And it was part of SS, so Schutzstaffel, so the famous, you know, um, you know, skulls that they have on their on their heads and yeah. responsible yeah. for for multiple atrocities all across the Europe, especially Eastern Europe. Um, so as they was part of SS, and as as they or SD would be in English, um, began also to operate in occupied territories as the front uh, um, advanced and started competing with Abwehr. Uh, providing um, the leaders of Nazi Germany with um, what they believe was superior, more reliable information. What's interesting, and you can find, you know, read something about it, Abwehr under Canaris was uh, eventually, I think in 1944, accused of undermining the Nazi system as they were actually collecting information about atrocities uh, perpetrated by the Nazis in uh, the occupied territories. Uh, especially in Ukraine, Poland, Belarus. I mean, those were, you know, the, the, the colonial part of the of the of, of the Second World War. Um, so, by, so by collecting that information, they wanted to, to be used. Yeah, they wanted against, to undermine. They wanted yeah. to undermine the Nazi system, and and that was caught by by SS. And these people, the leaders, were eventually, you know, imprisoned, executed. Canaris himself was, I think, killed. At, at the concentration camp in Sachsenhausen within days before the end of the Second World War. Uh, so SD won. But it's interesting is that the ideological, ideologically pure um, uh, service, intelligence service, which was not military per se, uh, mm. replaced the military intelligence service. So kind of the other way around of what mm. we are observing here in, in Ukraine. But it's interesting because you have always this kind of competition. Who's closer? Who's more loyal? Who offers better better information. And the fall of FSB, if it's true, if it's confirmed, um, will be quite remarkable because this is where Putin is, you know, originally from. So from from the KGB's uh, foreign service. So right. that's why he was stationed in East Germany, uh, not from the military intelligence. So that's, a, that's an interesting tidbit. Do we, do we assume that when this kind of a change is made, it's not a sign it's not a positive sign, but it's a sign of weakness or you wouldn't be making the change at all. So looking backwards, of course, it's a positive sign because FSB didn't do the right job, right? And of course they right. messed up completely both in the Kiev region and in Kharkiv region up until now. Going mm -hmm. forward, you know, I would rather have them stay if they're just so completely- They weren't getting the job maybe, done. Or maybe let's give Ukrainians some credit. Maybe they are infiltrated by Ukrainian elements, right? Mm -hmm. It's not impossible. Mm -hmm. And so, Replacing them with GRU may not be a particularly good news for Ukraine if GRU performs, right? But yes, yes. That's probably, um, that's probably Putin's goal. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that there's also some, you know, generally in an organization, when you make a big change, there's a transitional period too where there's vulnerability and potential weakness. Yeah, and I would think that even if this is a leak and if this is this is confirmed, the leak came sometime after this decision was made. So probably some, you know, operational changes took place before this became quasi public, or at least, you know, um, street knowledge. 
So you gave me a list of some other things you wanted to talk about, and, and we've we've spent a lot of time talking about these current events, frankly. Do you want to dig into some of those things or wait until next week? Uh, maybe we can wait until next week. We have we have a pretty big chunk that I'd like to discuss. So here is a little bit foretaste. You know, in, in, in the past, during the um, the first Cold War that started also with a hot war in Korea, so something similar to what we're observing now during the second Cold War, there was always this ideological uh, backbone to both sides, right? There was communism against capitalism. It was, it was an ideological rift between the two worlds. Uh, and of course, it has its had its significant uh, economic uh, corollary, like the two worlds were not very strongly connected, especially with yeah, the Soviet yeah. economy. Um, and so often when you hear these days, well, you know, this particular conflict, whether it's Russia or China, it doesn't really matter so much because it's not ideological. Therefore, if they're not ideological, they're not totalitarian regimes. They're just autocrats. Mm -hmm. And I want to uh, take an issue with that and go through first, in the case of Russia, through some elements of ideology and you know, because it's not a monolith, it's not a monolithic view of the world. But unfortunately for us in our open media system and the sourcing and targeting that we can do through social media, it doesn't matter for a promoter of ideologies mm -hmm. to be internally consistent. You can target different groups with different messages and those groups will stay within their silos and may you know, drink the Kool-Aid from what you provide mm -hmm. with a mm -hmm. lot of success for the promoter of the ideologies mm -hmm. in plural. So uh, I just want to undermine the view that you know Russia doesn't have an ideology because it has one. It has one for internal purposes and we can go through it. Mm -hmm. Part of the offshoot of that is also exported uh, to the outside world. And there are several others that are exported to the outside world. And maybe when we go through it, you will recognize certain elements in different mm -hmm. parts of the world, how the societies are fractured as they are fed with specific narratives of you know, important ideological weight that Russia is promoting um, very successfully. So they never lost that capacity that, that KGB had in the past, infiltrating uh, the, uh, the narratives in the West back then it was mostly you know western academia leftist or communists in the west and so on but they didn't have the vehicles such as the social media media um, digital media in general to to promote it as easily as they can do it right now and of course china is doing a fabulous job doing something something similar so it's for for yet another uh sequel and uh, uh you know they are remarkably successful and not recognizing this um puts us in a relatively weak position um, and we have very little, uh, you know, counteroffensive that we can plow, not only against the sources of that, those ideological narratives, but even so against people who have already been poisoned by those mm -hmm. ideas. Because to be poisoned by those ideas, you have to have certain initial conditions, something that will make you amenable or open to, yeah. these, to, to these messages. And this is where Russians are extremely good parsing, different cleavages within different societies and finding those um, this, this fertile ground and then, you know, refertilizing it further for its own reasons. And at the end of that, you know, when all of this trickles up to some elected officials who maybe swallowed a realism um, dogma from Neville Chamberlain or Kissinger or John Mersheimer or someone, 
uh, then they're gonna you know promote something within the context of some broader um, school of thought but um, it will reflect thinking the thinking of a lot of people who will support for example Russian narrative for a variety of different reasons mm -hmm. because it's always easier to be against something and Russians will tell you what you should you should be against and this is this this fear factor the very good promoting and that's why I think it's worth to to devote at least at least a, um, another sequel to it all right, we're gonna talk about that next week. Ina says, wonderful information and great history lesson. Thank you so much for your time. Thomas, thank you.